We are keeping democracy alive. Check for pulse. Stand clear. Push to shock. So yes, there's a huge gap between public opinion and public policy. Still living right? That people don't feel that they can do very much. You know what this is? This is a very Hamiltonian system. Alexander Hamilton being the guy here in a very un-Jeffersonian. In the case of the Republicans, it's dramatically the opposite. Uh, But even in the case of the Democrats. An absolute typhoon of terror against African Americans in the South. America's fascists are those people who think that Wall Street comes first and the American people come second. We're only seen as a financial sector that's uh, gotten out of hand. The shooting, the violence, that is not a drug problem. That is, in fact, the drug policy problem. I speak tonight for the dignity of man. Ah, good old LBJ. Well, it's being called a political earthquake. No, we're not talking about Bernie Sanders' surge of support across the United States. On today's Keeping Democracy Alive, our guest is in London, England, and the subject is the stunning victory on September 12th of Jeremy Corbyn as leader of the Labour Party. Now, this is the same party which had as its uh, leader just recently, the very moderate to right-leaning Tony Blair. Corbyn I was given virtually no chance of pulling off a victory, but pull it off, he did, with a stunning victory of nearly 60%. Does this signal a new direction for formerly Great Britain? Is this part of the resurgence of the left across the Western world? Well, here to talk about all this is Dee Dee Guttenplan. Don, thanks for being with us from London. It's a pleasure. Thanks for having me. Well, uh, Dee Dee Guttenplan uh, joins us from London after working as a senior editor at The Village Voice, editing the paper's political and news coverage. Uh, and he, uh, he writes oftentimes about lost causes, which led him to Newsday, where he wrote a weekly, a weekly media column and covered the 1988 presidential campaign. His reporting on the 1990 Happy Land Social Club fire in the Bronx won a Page One award from the New York Newspaper Guild, and his investigative reporting on New York City's ineffectual fire code was a finalist for the Pulitzer Prize. Following a year as a research fellow at the Freedom Forum Media Studies at Columbia, Guttenplan moved to London in 1994. He's taught American history at University College and Birkbeck College and is a frequent commentator on American culture and politics on the BBC, the Beeb. Guttenplan's most recent book is The Nation, a biography. Before that, he wrote American Radical, The Life and Times of I.F. Stone. He's currently an editor-at-large at The Nation, based in London. Guttenplan is currently education writer for the International Herald Tribune, the global edition of The New York Times. He also blogs for The Nation and The Guardian, an enthusiastic cook and a talented eater. He has just completed his 12th marathon. Now, that is a longer introduction, but hey, it's impressive. Again, thanks. <laughs> Thanks, John, for being with us. And, there, and there's only one part of it that isn't true anymore. I don't write about education for the, uh, for the International Herald Tribune for the simple reason that the International Herald Tribune doesn't exist anymore. It's yeah, from I the c- International New York Times. But my, my website is not the kind that I can update myself, so I apologize for the slightly <laughs> out-of-date information. 
Well, I can relate, believe me. Well, here's this guy, Jeremy Corbyn, 66 years old. He was given virtually no chance of being elected as head of the Labor Party. How- yeah, my favorite, my favorite fact about this whole affair is that there's a, as your listeners may or may not know, um, betting is legal in Britain. Oh, and right. we have what are called betting shops or bookmakers. And they tend to be like every other uh, capitalist enterprise organized in chains. And so there's a chain of betting shops called Paddy Power uh, in Britain. And they gave, if you put five pounds on Jeremy Corbyn to be the leader of the Labour Party, uh, let's say in June, which is a month after Labour lost the last election, uh, or in July, when Corbyn first was struggling to get the 35 of his fellow Labour MPs to nominate him in order to run for leader, you could have put five pounds on him then, and they would have given you odds of 200 to 1. Oh, my. So um, that five-pound bet would have got you 1,000 pounds, which is, in today's money, about $1,500. And um, the interesting thing is that you would have gotten those 200 to 1 odds right up until the end of July, when they <laughs> when they conducted the first poll, polling in Britain is a little rudimentary compared to yeah. uh, polling tech, both technology and the market for it in the U.S. So there was a long time when there was nothing but speculation, and everybody assumed, including Corbyn himself, that he was being put up as a kind of window dressing or a make weight, hmm. somebody who would be there to represent the party's left, so that you couldn't say they were excluded from the debate, but who would then be quickly ignored and um you know who is right. expected to finish last sure and yet the the actual results weren't announced until september 12th but as early as the first of september you could have gone into patty power with your five dollar betting slip and collected your thousand your five pound betting slip and collected your thousand pounds they were so sure he was going to win by the end he was so far ahead of anybody else running that they began paying out even before the election was over. Oh, my goodness. Now, what, what explains this? Here's a guy from the left. How did his surprise win happen? Why? Maybe that's the more important question. <laughs> well, how and why are different questions. So let's Definitely. start with how. And let's start with the nature of the electorate. Now, uh, as I'm sure all of your listeners will know, the last leader of the British Labour Party was Eddie Miliband, or Edward Miliband. Oh, yes. I call him Eddie because he was a nation intern when he was 19 years old. No, no kidding. Uh, and I met him across a kitchen table at the time when I was an occasional contributor to the magazine. Um, he became leader of the later Labour Party in an election that he won challenging his brother, David Miliband, who was the favored candidate and who now runs the International Rescue Committee in New York City. And at that time, the electorate of the Labour Party was in three parts. There was the general card-carrying members, like myself, people who pay 20 or 25 pounds a year to join the party. So it's not like being a Republican or a Democrat in the U.S. That's the first thing to, to note, is you, you actually have to pay dues and become a dues-paying member. Um, but that was only a third of the electorate. Then there was a section of the electorate which essentially was controlled by the large unions because it was the unions, the labor movement, that gave birth to the Labor Party and which have always and still continue to provide most of the funding for the Labor Party. So until uh, until this year, actually, 
the union section of the party was organized around what was called a block vote. So in other words, if you were the, say, Unison, which is a public sector workers union, and you had 200,000 members, each one of those 200,000 members would be counted, but they would be voted by the union leadership in one block. They wouldn't, some unions bothered to poll their members, some didn't. It didn't really make any difference because it was the union leader who essentially cast the votes. And then there was a third section of the electorate, which were the members of the Parliamentary Labor Party. So these were labor, labor MPs, serving MPs, and, and their votes were weighted um, so that they actually, even though there were you know, 200 of them, they also controlled a third of the electorate. And the, the thinking behind that, I suppose, was that they were voting for somebody who was going to be their leader and on whose fortunes their own electoral careers would rise or fall. Because, of course, in Britain, you don't vote for prime minister. You vote for your local MP, and then the party that has the most votes in Parliament gets to choose its leader as prime minister. So oh, that's quite different. Uh, it's not a presidential system, and until really Tony Blair, or Margaret Thatcher maybe, the theory was that it didn't matter so much who was the leader of the party. What mattered was the party's program, their platform, what they stood for, who they appealed to, which section of society they represented. Uh -huh. But that began to change a lot under Thatcher. And then Tony Blair was really a long, he sort of took a leaf from Bill Clinton and even yes. took some people who worked in the Clinton campaign to work for him yeah. to cast himself as a more presidential, above ideology kind of leader. Anyway. Um, so, aside when, from... I was just when gonna, Miliband was yeah. elected, he lost the segment that was ordinary party members, and he lost the segment that was parliamentary Labor Party members, but he won the union vote, and he won it by a large enough block to put himself in power as leader. And in partly in, re in reaction to that, and partly because he genuinely was a small-D Democrat, he changed the system, just like George McGovern changed the, the American Democratic Party nominating system. He changed the system, and he instituted a system where anybody could, where first of all, it's one, one member, one vote. Even if you were affiliated, if you got your vote because you were affiliated with a union, that was fine, but you had to cast it yourself. Your leader couldn't cast it for you. You had to actually bother to vote. No, and also, anybody who wanted to affiliate themselves with the Labour Party, which meant less of a kind of commitment. You didn't necessarily, you weren't necessarily signing up for going to meetings or doing leafleting or making phone calls. It was more like being a registered Republican or a registered Democrat. That cost three pounds or about five dollars. Mm -hmm. But those people also got to vote and all of their votes counted for the same amount. Now when the leadership election began, Corbyn was the only candidate who on his homepage for his leadership campaign had a button that said, I'd like to become a supporter of the, the Labor Party so I can vote for Jeremy Corbyn, or I'd like to become a member of the Labor Party so I can vote for Jeremy Corbyn. And what happened is three or four hundred thousand people like that signed up. Ah. So that's one thing that in a way he does have that's in common with Bernie Sanders. Yes, is he reaches parts of the potential electorate that the other candidates couldn't reach. Oh, very interesting. If you just tuned in, we're talking about the political landslide across the pond, Jer Jeremy Corbyn uh, as head of the Labor Party, and he is certainly of the left. We're talking with uh, D.D. Guttenplan, uh, who is uh, with The Nation magazine. He is in London. So you talked about a bit of the how it happened. Very interesting, and there certainly are some parallels there. Why? 
<laughs> ah, well, <laughs> who, who is, what is his appeal? Question. Yeah, what, who, what, what is, who is Jeremy Corbyn, and what is his appeal? Well, so Corbyn is a, he's a campaigner. He's somebody who's always been there. So in that sense, it's like, you know, if you were, he's, he's the MP for Islington, which is a neighborhood in London, not, it's about two miles from where I'm speaking to you now. It's in North London. It's a, a neighborhood that's five minutes by tube train to the city, the financial district. So it's the wealthy people who live there tend to be very wealthy, but it also has lots of public housing. So it's a very uh, economically diverse area. And he's someone who uh, never graduated from college, uh, became active in politics at a very young age as a kind of community organizer, and then went to work for, for labor unions as a researcher, uh, and then has been in Parliament since 1983, but always as a backbencher. So mm-hmm. what that means is when you are in the, either in the government, if you're in the government and you have what's called your front bench, those are the people who you appoint to cabinet departments to become like the uh, secretary of state for education, or the minister of health, or mm-hmm. the home office, or the chancellor of the exchequer, or the foreign, or the foreign minister, the foreign secretary. Those are all cabinet positions. Those people all sit on the front benches in the House of Commons, and that's why it's called front bench. Sure, quite literally. But if you have a, even if you have a big cabinet, let's say you have 40 people in your cabinet, but you have a 300-person strong parliamentary delegation, most of them sit in the back benches, and you know their their job is to be constituency MPs to respond mm-hmm. to you know potholes and complaints and things like that from people, and also to turn up to vote along party lines when you need a vote. Um, and the thing about Corbyn is that he was a backbench MP for 30 years, but he was somebody who rebelled against the party vote. In other words, the party said, we're going to vote for this. Let's say, for example, this is, we're going to vote to, to, uh, we're going to vote to deplore, we're going to vote to go to war with Iraq. That's a, that's a good example. Sure, we're going to vote sure. to go to war with Iraq. And that was, uh, you know, Tony Blair, a labor prime minister, he called on the Labor Party to support him. He was supporting George Bush. And uh, Jeremy Corbyn said, no, I'm not voting to support the war in Iraq. I think it's wrong. Um, he did that on lots of things, though, hundreds and hundreds of things. So that meant that he was never going to become a front-bench MP. He was never going to get a, a cabinet job. Mm. He was a serial rebel, somebody who was always voting against his own party, not because he was voting in favor of the Tory party's position, right. but because he was voting against his own party from the left. So that's part of who he was. Well, he the the, the Labor Party has traditionally uh, been a party of the left. It only changed relatively recently. Is is my memory correct that they they used to be for keeping uh, utilities uh, held by the public of the nation, like coal mines and railways, and 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 keeping ownership of these public utilities in the hands. Of the public, and then I mean, of the of the of the two major parties in Britain, the Conservative Party and the Labour Party. The Labour Party has always been more more left than the Conservative Party. Yeah, of course. Um, on the other hand, uh, the Labour Party has been has varied in how much to the left it's been, pretty widely over its hundred year odd history. Um, it is true that Tony Blair essentially tried a kind of Clinton-style triangulation and basically decided the only way that labor was going to win, because you have to remember that before Clinton, labor had been out of power for 20 years. Mm. 
I mean, before Blair. Right. Labor had been out of power for 20 years. So he decided the way to win was to move to the center and to essentially accept the Thatcherite consensus about things like, for example, public ownership or the, the rights of labor unions. And so he didn't promise to take the rail companies, which had been privatized, or the coal mines, which had been shut down, or the energy companies back into public ownership. Um, they, in fact, when you, when you join the Labor Party, you get a party card. I have one. It's red. And on the back, it used to say, uh, the Labor Party is a Democratic Socialist Party that supports, I don't know, I, I forget the exact words, but the idea then was that, and the public ownership of the means of production. It mm-hmm. was committed to bringing into public ownership the means of production. Mm-hmm. Now, they never really meant that from about 1950 onwards. You know, there, there's, there's been no labor leader who, who was eager to go around nationalizing things. What, what tended to happen under labor governments is that a, an industry like the steel industry or the coal industry would about, be about to go bankrupt, and there would be, you know, the thought of losing hundreds of thousands of jobs, so they would say, well, in that case, we'll nationalize it and we'll take it over, and those workers, instead of becoming unemployed, will become employees of the state. Um, and then Margaret Thatcher funded yeah. a lot of what she did by essentially selling off these industries which had been privatized, which had been taken over, which had been nationalized. She sold them off and used that money to pay for things like tax cuts. So uh, Blair didn't promise to reverse any of that. And in fact, before he was elected, he got them to change Clause 4 of the Labor Party Constitution so that it basically said they... People should. It's the, still a democratic socialist party. It's still committed to the welfare of the many, not the few. But it it doesn't say anything about public ownership. And um, one of the things that Jeremy Corbyn said is that he, if he's elected, he wants to take the railroads back into public ownership. Uh, and the interesting thing about that is that if you look at opinion polls in Britain, that is a popular position not only among people who vote Labour, it's a majority position among people who vote Conservative, because they've seen what private ownership by that nice man Richard Branson and other companies uh, have done to what used to be the best railroad system in the world, which is it's, it's continuing to decay. Now, I have to say that, for your listeners' purposes, continuing to decay, but still way better than Amtrak on any <laughs> given day. But, you know, it had a lot further to fall. Yeah. That's so interesting, the the shift in the, the party. I'm sensing some parallels, and one can't always draw parallels, but I am sensing some. I mean, the Democratic Party here in the United States has always been at least a tiny, tiny bit left of center. But then, you know, it's, it's been the party of working people. But then in the 1990s, under Bill Clinton, there was the Democratic Leadership Conference, which pulled the party to the right, no question about it. It, it moved it, uh, you know, looking for corporate money. It was all about following the money. Uh, now, many in the Democratic Party are looking and eager to take it back to its, its roots with some significant uh, resistance at the top of the institutional Democratic Party. I wonder if there are similarities there. Well, I think there are definitely similarities in terms of resistance. Mm-hmm. I mean, um, you know, there, there's uh, one of the questions that was a, a live question when Corbyn's victory was announced was, would he manage to get anybody to serve in his shadow cabinet? The shadow cabinet right. are the, because the Tories are in power now, 
what the Labour Party has is they don't control any government departments, but he, he appoints a cabinet so that if they win the next election, these are the people that would take over these departments. And your job now, say, for example, you're the shadow home secretary. So today, at the Tory party conference, Theresa May, the home secretary, made a speech saying we have to get immigration under control. It was basically a sort of Donald Trump, yeah. in a, you know, high-heeled shoes kind of speech. So if you are the shadow home secretary, uh, your job is to then go out and, and, and oppose her and say why that's wrong. And in other words... It's to make sure that the opposition's point of view is always put out and put out by someone who's knowledgeable and who sort of follows yeah. the department day to day, even though they're not actually running it. And there was a whole slew of labor former cabinet members who said they would not serve in a Corbyn cabinet because they thought he was too left-wing. And so one question, uh, I just had a piece about this on the nation, www.thenation.com, is whether Corbyn would survive his first week. And, in fact, he had no trouble getting people to serve in his cabinet, but, but there was a lot of speculation in the press that he wouldn't. You also have to realize, and this is maybe or may not be a parallel, that the press in Britain is overwhelmingly hostile to the Labour Party, and not just because the two largest-selling newspapers in the country are owned by Rupert Murdoch, mm. but also because almost all of the newspapers, the ones that aren't owned by Murdoch, are owned by other you know, large corporate interests that are that are opposed to the Labour Party, with the exception of the Guardian, which you know, to give you an example, uh, the Sun, Murdoch's flagship paper, sells four million copies every day. The Guardian sells about three hundred thousand copies every day. Oh my! So it's not exactly an equal fight. Now, I mean, you know, the online figures are very different, but still, in the sort of media atmosphere, uh, the atmosphere is incredibly hostile to Corbyn. Just today, for example, the Daily Telegraph, which is owned by the Barclay Brothers, these two kind of reclusive tax exiles who certainly have no sympathy for the Labour Party, um, they they agreed to issue an apology to Corbyn because they had claimed during the run-up to the leadership election that a Jewish MP had said he was anti-Semitic. And the, the MP didn't say that, uh, and he threatened to sue if they didn't apologize, so they, they have now had to issue an apology. But... That's a small example of the kind of overwhelming barrage of hostile media that Corbyn had to endure and will probably have to endure for as long as he lasts as leader. Mm, interesting, and I certainly see some parallels there. Now, it seems like uh, a lot of the British press might be like the American press, except on steroids, I mean, really strong <laughs> opposition. I mean, Bernie Sanders here, they mostly have ignored as long as possible. Now, you know, it's changing a bit. There's that old uh, quote attributed to Gandhi, first they ignore you, uh, then they laugh at you, then they fight you, then you win. Well, Cor <laughs> Corbin has certainly... We're in the then-they-fight-you stage now. Aha, uh -huh, interesting. So the election, the actual election for prime minister is not, I mean, it's, it's not on a set that's, schedule. That's the, other thing. that's the other thing that's changed in Britain, and, that, and that's also a factor here, is that um, until, well, until 2008, I guess it was, until essentially until 20, no until 2010 when the conservatives won, didn't win an outright majority so they had to govern in coalition with the liberal democrats right um, one of the conditions of the liberal democrats in in terms of entering into that coalition was that they wanted election reform 
Now, they wanted the really big election reform they wanted was proportional representation, and they got screwed on that by the conservatives who agreed to stage a referendum and then campaigned against it, and it failed. But one of the things that they did do was they instituted a fixed-term parliament. So it it used to be that if you were prime minister, and let's say you just done something that was going to really help your popularity out, like you'd won a war. Right. For example, Margaret Thatcher, right after the Falklands, right. she held an election. Right. Because once you're elected, you have, you have a five-year, up to five-year term, but you can call an election at any time. Sure. So, you know, you have new economic figures coming out, and they're going to be lousy. You call an election before they come out so that you don't have to deal with them. Or you've just won a war, you call an election, you, get, you, extend, your, you extend your lease on office by five years. Mm-hmm. Well, in 2010, they changed that. And they, they, they passed the Fixed-Term Parliament Act, which said we're going to have an election in 2015, and after that there's going to be an election in 2020, and each, each parliament is going to serve five years. So in theory, we know when the next election is going to be, and it's not, till 2015, and not until 2020. Now, because there is no balance of powers in Britain, there's no, it's not like the president is the chief executive and then you have Congress as the legislature. In Britain you have the prime minister who is a legislator and parliament which is the legislature but which whose whose cabinet ministers are also the executive so oh, there's wow. hmm. the mashing together of executive and legislative function wow. and it's and it means that anytime parliament wants it can pass a law to change and go against what its previous laws said so they they could pass the law tomorrow saying we're going to have an election next week or somewhat more likely if the Tory party split over something, for example, whether Britain should remain as part of the European Union, which right. they promised to give us a vote on by 2017, if they split over that and Cameron feels that he, he no longer commands a majority in Parliament, he could call an, an election earlier, but he probably wouldn't want to because he might lose that election. And this way, he's allowed to stay in office till 2020. So in theory, Corbyn isn't even going to be realistically anywhere close to power until 2020. And that matters because until then, his job is very different. In 2020, his job is to win the most votes, to help Labour candidates get elected as MPs, and then to form a government. Before that, his, uh, his job is to hold his party together in opposition, which means that if the Tories propose, for example, as they've just done, cutting tax credits to working poor people, mm. he's supposed to get... his the whole Labour Party to vote against that so that if they can peel off a few slightly socially conscious Tories, they might stop it. Or he's supposed to, you know, effectively oppose what the government's doing and shine a light on what they're doing. And and in Prime Minister's questions, he's supposed to ask forensic questions that will make the Prime Minister reveal his true motives in what he's doing. Mm-hmm. And all of those call on skill sets that Jeremy Corbyn has never demonstrated it's not to say he might not have them or discover them, but, you know, if you're a Labour MP and you're thinking of voting against your party line, it's hard to be told you have to be loyal by a guy who's voted against the party himself 600 times. Mm. Interesting. Well, it, it does remind me once again of the popularity of another somewhat old white guy here in the United States, Bernie Sanders. He has you know, not been with the Democratic Party. He's been an independent. And sometimes he has bucked the party, and he's certainly bucking the institutional Democratic Party now. And yet the popular support is is tremendously strong. And the institutional party, those few uh, uh, people 
who are there in Washington and, and hold, you know, actual positions of power within the party structure, they got to be tearing their hair out because uh, Bernie Sanders is, is not their guy. And well, he's not their guy, but he's he's more their guy than Corbin is Labor's guy. I'll give you a couple of examples. That, yeah. mm-hmm. um, one is Sanders was voted by his fellow Democrats to be the chair of the Senate Armed Services Committee. Right. So that meant that they felt on an issue which, after all, matters to voters, right? If you live in an area with, which has a military base or a lot of veterans, the Armed Services Committee is an important committee. Right. And as it happens, Vermont has a lot of veterans, so it was an important committee for Sanders to serve on. Um, you know, it helps him win votes, but it also means, you know, if, if your VA hospital is going to pot and you go to your congressman and say this, he needs to know that he can trust the chairman of the Armed Services Committee to do something about it, or, or at least to deal with him honestly. And so that's the kind of position of trust from his peers that Corbyn has never had and never uh, been given. Huh. And yet now he's the boss. The other thing is that although Sanders is, was until recently not even a member of the Democratic Party, right. I mean, you know, parties mean different things in the U.S. than they do in Britain. There isn't there isn't, unless you're a kind of apparatchik, right. the kind of tribal identity mm-hmm. being, you know, sure, I'm a Democrat, I'm a Democrat to the last dog dies, people sometimes say, but, but, you know, for most people it just means that's the way you tick the box when you register. Right. Even if you habitually vote Democratic your whole life, even if you would never consider, or even if you're a Republican and you would never consider voting for Democrat, you don't look at, say, Jerry Falwell and say, this guy wasn't a registered Republican, therefore... I don't trust him. He doesn't share my values. You think, oh, he's a brother reactionary. You know, mm-hmm. <laughs> we we share the same worldview. So, but but so part of it is that party ties matter less. But also, Sanders, from what I've been told in my reporting, for example, when I met you in in New Hampshire last month, was that he's been doing fundraisers for Democratic candidates, at least in New Hampshire. Um, you know, and part of that is to make nice with people, obviously, but. That's exactly the sort of gesture that Corbyn has never done. So I wonder about his power. I mean, here this guy came to power. Uh, only real party members could vote, correct? I mean, which is very different from the United States. Well, on, on, only, only people who either joined or said they were supporters. And there was a certain amount of, the, particularly in the Tory press, there was a certain amount of, well, let's all join the Labor Party so we can vote for Corbyn because he's the least electable. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, which is not that different from states that have open primaries in the U.S. And you, could, you could imagine the Republicans oh, yeah. say, let's all vote for Bernie Sanders. Because they think he's um, yeah. Of course, you know, they're probably now more scared of him than they would have been before. <laughs> but, um, but, you know, then there's, there's also, um, I think what's much more relevant really is, and this is something that Sanders and Corbyn do have in common, which is they have a base that's outside of electoral politics and that they're able to mobilize. You know, I mean, Corbyn has been in lots of campaigns. He's been really active, for example, in terms of justice for Palestinians. He's really been very active in terms of union rights and workers' rights. He's been very active in in terms of things like uh, in terms of help for groups like the Kurds, or mm-hmm. he was a crucial, crucial MP in getting the Guilford Four. Uh, you know, if you saw the movie In the Name of the Father, the, Corbyn was a crucial person in getting those people out of prison. Um, 
He's been a crucial link partly because Islington, his district, has a lot of uh, Irish immigrants, but he's been a crucial link between the IRA and electoral politics since long before that was respectable. And indeed, some of that came back to bite him in the in the leadership campaign, but but most people realize that it's just that Corbyn was there before it was respectable. Mm. <laughs> that does sound familiar. And, and Bernie Sanders has been saying basically the same things. He's been making the same fight year after year, decade after decade, and people are finally coming around to that. Now, sir, well, go ahead. Well, I think there are two. I think there are two big things that they have in common. Okay. One is authenticity. That's what I was going to ask. Somebody said to me about Bernie Sanders. You see politicians change position from day to day and week to week, and here's a guy whose positions don't change from decade to decade. True. And I think that's also very true of Jeremy Corbyn. You know, the, the things he's in favor of now, he was in favor of in 1983. He hasn't moved. Politics has moved, but he hasn't moved. And, you know, you could argue that that means that his approach is outdated or that it's unrealistic, but I think in the in you know in an era of, like, endless focus groups and where you can <laughs> never believe what anybody tells you, People like a politician that they can believe what he says, that, he, that they think he means what he says. So that's part of it. Very interesting. And then another part of it, and I think a very big part of it, is that they are the only mainstream voices opposing austerity. And, you know, particularly uh-huh. in Britain, which has had much... I mean, in the U.S., President Obama, he didn't go far enough to satisfy certainly the Nation magazine or even Paul Krugman... But you had a kind of modified Keynesian stimulus, you know, where the federal government spent money, they built roads, they repaired bridges, they put people to work. A little bit. They bailed out the auto industry, so they did try and do something to lift the economy out of recession. In Britain, they just cut. They cut and cut and cut. Well, that's what I I, I was going to ask about that. The authenticity thing, people get that. It's extremely important. I have a, a good friend who... Normally, vote. He's one of those people. He votes Democratic. He's not a party person. He saw he was leaning toward Hillary. Uh, he saw a Hillary ad and he said, eh, "I just don't trust her." So he's he's leaning toward Bernie now. And y- you brought up interesting uh, uh, issues. I mean, the economy is always the most important issue, pretty much always. Not always, but pretty much. In what condition is the British economy? What, what's unemployment like? Has there been? Uh, austerity under the leadership of the uh, Tory party, and how much of a factor is the economy in the surprise win of Jeremy Corbyn? I think the economy is a huge factor, and I'll I'll tell you why. There are three reasons. Now, the British economy is recovering. It's recovering more robustly than, for example, the Spanish or the Greek economies. Mm -hmm. Um, And, of course, part of that is because Britain isn't in the euro. Um, so that it doesn't have the kind of eurozone virus, and it can also it controls its own currency, so it can do a version of quantitative easing, which the Bank of England did. It wasn't the same as the American quantitative easing, and the technical reasons for that are probably too complicated to explain. But it was quantitative easing, and it worked a little bit. Um, but essentially, the British economy is lifting because the American economy is lifting, and they are much more closely aligned with each other than. Than with other economies, and also, uh, it's it's like well, yes, it, things are better in Britain than they were. They're a lot better than they were in 2008, but they're not nearly as good as they could have been if the government, for example, had followed the policies of the Labour Party that they ran on in 2010 of sort of trying to balance the budget, but trying to do it much more slowly and not cutting back so much. 
I mean, the problem was that labor did not offer an, an alternative to austerity. They, they offered austerity light. And, you know, even though austerity light would, in fact, be better for people, it's hard to prove that it would be better for people, and it's hard to argue. It's hard to say to people, you know, you are actually better off now, but you'd be even better better off or a lot better off if you hadn't voted Tory last time. So particularly if, if labor, as they were arguing under Ed Miliband, were basically saying, well, we're going to do the same as they're going to do, but we're going to do it a little bit less or a little bit more gently. <laughs> and, and here's an example of that. I've heard that before here, you know. Yeah, well, exactly. Oh, right after Labor lost the election, so that Miliband resigned in yeah. twenty in May twenty ten, and there was a Harriet Harman was the deputy leader of the party, and she became acting party leader, which basically meant she's a caretaker until mm-hmm. they had these elections. But mm-hmm. you know, the business of government has to go on, and there has to be somebody. And of course, the Tories used this interregnum and the fact that they were now a majority, so they didn't have to defer to the sort of liberal, wishy-washy sensibilities of the Liberal Democrats anymore, they immediately put in a bill to cut back welfare benefits um, and to put a cap on the amount that any one family could get. So, you know, if you had two kids, you got a certain level. If you had three kids, you got a certain level. But if you had more than three kids, that was it. You didn't get any more money. So essentially, the more kids you got, the hungrier you were. And that was just too bad. Um, and, of course, you know, they were putting this in now, so it's like it's not like, well, we're going to do this over 20 years and, you know, we're going to help you with family planning. It's like this is what's going to happen now. Mm. And she said that the Labor Party was not going to vote against this bill. They, were, they did not want to be maneuvered into being uh-huh. the defenders of welfare spending. That's mm-hmm. not the political ground they wanted to occupy, she said. So we are not going to oppose this bill. We're going to abstain. And there were four people who were running for the labor leadership. Three of them abstained. Mm. Wow. Corbyn said, this is an immoral bill, and I'm against it. And I will not vote for it. I will vote against it. And he, he opposed it. Interesting. And, you know, that, that gave him a claim to plausibility as the only voice, the only anti-austerity voice in the race. And we've... I mean, you, you, we, we, you could argue that there could have been better better vehicles for an anti-austerity right, message. Right. But, you know, he was the only one on offer, and people really went for it. Here in the U.S., there are a lot of people who argue that the Democratic Party should be, like the Republican Party, a little bit less so. You know, kind of copying the Republican Party, you know, c- catering to the corporate, to the top 1%, and just being, you know, the Republican Party light, and it sounds very similar there. And there are those who argue that's the way to win. That was the uh, Democratic Leadership Conference. Is that, is there a similar, uh, you know, is there anything parallel within the Labor Party? Oh, yeah, no, that's, that was New Labor. New Labor was New all Labor. about the center ground, what they called in, in 1997 Mondeo Man, which is the sub- suburban man driving a Ford uh, Mondeo, which was a European version of a Ford station wagon. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, and it was kind of, it was the middle class. It was the middle class voter, but it was not about defending the middle class. It was the sort of, the notional holy grail of politics was the middle ground. You know, that was where the idea was that there was a certain percentage of British voters who were tribally labor, either because they were union members, because many more people who are union members in Britain than in the U.S., a much more unionized workforce, or tribally Tory because, you know, 
they owned things. <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, they were the you know they were the owners of businesses or whatever. But that most people were in the middle, and it was the middle where the elections were decided. And of course, also you had a, you had this phenomenon. You know, you had Reagan Democrats in the U.S. in 1980 who no, went over sure. to the Republican Party, yeah. and you had Thatcher. Labor Thatcher voters, you know, you had Margaret Thatcher getting plenty of working class votes. So, in a sense, it was not that they were necessarily evil, the people who thought this. They were just trying to think, how do we get these people back? And we get them back by being a sort of uh, equally competent, slightly more compassionate version of the party that won them away from us. Right. Now, I, I have to, if you just tuned in to Keeping Democracy Alive, Bert Cohen here. Our guest today is Dee Dee Guttenplan, who uh, is editor-at-large at The Nation, and he's based in London, and that's where we're reaching him, talking about any parallels between Bernie Sanders in the U.S. and uh, Jeremy Corbyn uh, in England. And I wonder if foreign policy plays a big factor. Certainly with the Reagan Democrats and the Thatcher label, labor people, I would guess uh, that being strong on defense, you know, being marching in lockstep with the American, uh, let's face it, imperial mil- military adventures, uh, you know, that that has been, it appeals to a lot of working class, middle class people. Is But lately, it hasn't gone all that well for the United States or, or, for, or for England, shall we say. How much of a factor is this? And is this part of it's Corbyn's appeal? It's really interesting, and, and, and we are about to find out. Um, you know, part of what makes Corbyn so interesting as a phenomenon, and in a way he shares this with Sanders, is he will talk about things that other candidates won't talk about. Huh. So I would say that that one of the reasons that Tony Blair is a despised and reviled figure, you know, like if he was on one of those TV desert island shows, yeah. and there were like, <laughs> you know, ten life jackets, and nine of the people were like, you know, criminals and drug dealers, and the, Tony Blair was the tenth, he would still be the first person voted off the island. I mean, <laughs> people here really hate him. Yes. Um, and part of that, a large part of that, is because he took the country into war in Iraq, and people felt he lied the country into war in Iraq, and people felt that he did it in part because he was sucking up to George Bush. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that hurts the British self-love and their, their egos, that they don't mm-hmm. like to see... Uh, they don't like to see their prime minister sucking up to the Americans, first oh. of all. They felt that Thatcher was like at least Reagan's equal, mm-hmm. even though that wasn't true. Um, and secondly, they feel... Uh, and it's widely viewed here that what did Britain get out of the Iraq War? Really, you know, a lot of a lot of dead bodies and a lot of wounded soldiers and right. nothing else. Right. You know, you have you have these towns that were on the news every night. You know, Fallujah and other towns that were on the news where the British were making some heroic stand in some godforsaken part of Helmand Province in, in Afghanistan, and then you know now you you see that they're all controlled by either Taliban or the or ISIS. So. Yeah. So they really feel that this was a total waste, and they don't, they're not that keen on it. Uh, and I would say that, that none of the um, candidates for the leadership of the Labor Party this time around would have gone to war in Iraq, although three of them did vote for it the last time around. Um, but what's become interesting is, so part of this whole British national thing about defense is Britain is a nuclear power. Mm-hmm. They're nuclear power because they have nuclear weapons. The nuclear weapons they have are these Trident submarines, which have nuclear-tipped, nuclear-armed missiles on them. Mm-hmm. The missiles are actually supplied by the United States, 
And indeed, they can't be fired independently by a British captain. They have to be fired in coordination with the Americans. Hmm. Um, but nonetheless, it makes Britain feel like they're a nuclear power. As they say in the press here, it means they get to sit at the top table with the big boys. Oh boy. um, and it, it was Labour Party policy in the 1980s and the 1970s to get rid of them, to disarm unilaterally. And, uh, and then that was changed before Blair. That was changed by, by Neil Kinnock. Um, and they didn't make that commitment, and so they were not so much outflanked on the on that by the Tories, and Blair was the same. And Corbyn had said when he was running that he was in favor, he was not in favor of of replacing Trident, which is aging and needs to be, you know, it, it, they say More it needs investment. to be replaced. Mm-hmm. It's get, it's getting out of date. He said, "No, I'm opposed to it," but I understand that that isn't Labour Party policy or something. I don't know. There was. There was a certain amount of uh, there, there was a certain amount of prediction that the Tories would put up Trident renewal as an early vote to kind of split the Labour Party, which they may still do and which may still happen because most Labour MPs are certainly not committed to getting rid of it, and a lot of them are in areas where they have you know manufacturing jobs that depend on defense industry. Sure, so that's yeah. true too. Yeah. But just three days ago on television, somebody asked Corbyn what he thought, and he said, "Well." He said, I was elected by a very large mandate, and everybody knew where I stood on nuclear weapons. I'm opposed to them. Um, He said, that doesn't mean that that's Labor Party policy, but that's the direction he's going to take the party, and he wants the party to go. Now, they just had a Labor Party conference, and there was a motion to discuss nuclear weapons and Trident, Uh and that motion was voted down because it was, I think the party felt wisely that if they talk about it now, they're going to... (laughs) <laughs> They're going to fight about it, and they thought, let's put that off for another day. Mm. But then, on a television interview program, somebody asked Corbyn, if you were prime minister, could you imagine any circumstance under which you would push the nuclear button? Now, the thing is, you can easily imagine how Barack Obama or Hillary Clinton or pretty much any other politician in the Western world would answer that question. You know, they would just say, well, it's a hypothetical, and I'm not going to answer it, or our strategy depends on, you know, my being willing to push that button, so, you know, whatever. They're, they would either deflect it, or, you know, there's some way they would deflect it, or they wouldn't answer it, or they would say, well, if it came to that, I would push the button. You know, I'm sure Richard Nixon would have said, yeah, I'd push the button, I'd love pushing the button. <laughs> you know, Henry Kissinger has to keep me from pushing the button. Yeah. But um, Corbyn said, no, under no circumstances can I imagine pushing that button. Oh. And that, that... How does that play? That's still reverberating, I think. How does that play? I mean, certainly, I, I've read that the Conservative Party, the, the Tories say that Labour and Corbyn is now a threat to Britain's national and economic yeah, security. No, and so... In terms of the mainstream media, it's played terribly. Really? I wondered about you that, because fear, fear works really well here. You know. fear, fear works really well. The idea is that he's... He can't be trusted. The Labour Party becomes unpatriotic if they're led by him. Mm. Um, you know, I have to say that if you were somebody who was whose main interest in life was electoral politics, you would have said to him, please don't answer that question. Please don't answer that question. You don't have to answer that question. Nobody will think less of you if you don't answer that question. But he answered it. So that's what I mean by it's really interesting. It's really interesting. It's going to be very interesting to see. I mean, if you ask... British people generally, do they, are they in favor of Britain remaining a nuclear power? They say yes. Then you say, are you in favor of spending 100 million pounds to replace Trident, which uh-huh. is what Trident would cost to replace? And they say no. Mm-hmm. Um, 
So, you know, they, they want to go in every direction on this. There is no clear direction. Uh, this country, like every other nuclear power, has never had a grown-up debate about what nuclear weapons are for now that the now that we're not in a Cold War world. I'm not saying that Russia is all warm and cuddly, but, you know, we're not in a world where the argument is that we have nuclear weapons to keep us safe from Vladimir Putin walking down Broadway or coming to Piccadilly Circus and making everybody in, in Britain eat borscht for breakfast. I mean, <laughs> nobody imagines that's going to happen anymore. And it's also obvious that, you know, the the things that have caused disasters. I mean, you know, the 19 people with box cutters who killed 3,000 people at the World Trade Center, they were not deterred by the fact that there were nuclear weapons in yes, America. Yes, yes, different... Uh... And, and the possession of the, all those nuclear weapons didn't even do us any good in terms of retaliating. Not at all, of course not. You know, so irrelevant, so yeah. it may be that Britain is the first country that's a nuclear power, well, aside from South Africa, which which was a nuclear power but never admitted it, and then had a grown-up conversation and decided to give them up. But no, no other country, in no, in no other country, in no country that was an acknowledged nuclear power, has there been an adult conversation about what these weapons are for, and whether they're worth it, right. and whether and on what conceivable circumstances now you could imagine using them. I mean, this is in a sense. I think Britain is going to have, with any luck, the conversation that. Jonathan Shell, the late Jonathan Shell, called for in the nation, you know, ten years ago about abolition because Chris Corbin has let it out of the bag. Now, of course, he could be gotten rid of by either his colleagues in his party or, you know, some other set of circumstances. I mean, I would say that you would be a brave person to bet that Jeremy Corbin will still be leader of the Labor Party in five years. But, mm-hmm. um, well, but on the other hand. He said it, and now they have to deal with it, and now we all have to deal with it, and that's really interesting to me. And he, again, he's he's not doing the political thing. There are many candidates who you can just tell not a word comes out of their mouth unless it's been thoroughly, you know, poll tested. Not a, and he's very different from that. He just is who he is, and he's been talking about uh, foreign policy, and you know, so has that that well, it's it's like. Here, you know, if you look at the polls, probably most people would say they lean to the right. But if you look at actual issues, the position that mo- the vast majority of people have in the United States actually is definitely to the left. And certainly one thing in the United States is that there's a tiny group of super wealthy people. Is that and, and they have a lot of power. They basically you know, own the government in many ways. Is that dynamic playing in the UK? Is there a similar tiny group of you know one percenters? Well, really, you know, it, it, it's it's different, and it's different in interesting ways. So, for example, um, British elections are publicly financed. There's no private finance. And oh wow, that is so different. Yeah, there are strict spending limits. So, uh, and in fact, uh, <laughs> the last person who tried to buy his way to power in Britain was a guy called Michael Ashcroft, who was the chairman of the Conservative Party. When David Cameron became party leader, he he was uh, someone who inherited a lot of money from uh, I don't know family wealth operations in Belize and British Honduras. He wasn't even domiciled in Britain, which meant he didn't pay British taxes. And he was appointed to the House of Lords in order to allow him to be in the government um, in exchange for a promise that he would become domiciled in Britain. But then he never did, so he's he still doesn't pay British taxes. And he 
he was never given the kind of job he felt his donations to the Tory party entitled him to. Yeah. So he's just published a hostile biography about David of David Cameron. So part of it is, no, it's, it's not so easy to buy your way into power in Britain. On the other hand, today at the Tory party conference, or yesterday, the Chancellor of the Exchequer said that they were cutting back on welfare uh, in order to encourage people to work because uh, the British needed to, basically British workers needed to work as hard as the Chinese and by giving people decent welfare benefits, you were you were giving you were removing incentives to work, and that the only the people's self worth needs to come from money they earned. Now you know that may all be so, but they're not going after people whose unearned money comes from you know factories they inherited from their parents or land holdings that they inherited from their grandparents. You know they're only going after people who are scraping to get by on you know fifteen thousand dollars a year. Mm. And they're trying to reduce that to 12 to, you know, increase their feelings of self-worth. So trickle down. on the one hand, money in electoral politics, there isn't the same obvious connection as there is in the U.S. And on the other hand, this country already belongs to the rich. So, um, <laughs> you know, if, if working people want to run things, they're going to have to fight for it. Ah, uh, yes. Visions of Downton Abbey dance before my eyes. Uh, now, there's always been a, a left in the UK. I mean, it's just traditional. There hasn't this really, never really been a left uh, in the uh, currently United States. Uh, but uh, I'm, I'm guessing Corbyn is, I mean, he's certainly to the left of Bernie Sanders, no question about that, but he, he must be fairly consistent with a lot of British left tradition, working class, you know, Marxist, socialist uh, tradition. Well, he comes, you know, he comes out of recognizable British left traditions. Um, the, I mean, you know, one of the reasons that there's a left in Britain is because Britain has a Labour Party, which is supposed to right. represent the working class. Right. Um, you know, the Democrats uh, are a coalition, and you know, sometimes they represent workers, but a lot of times they represent other parts of their That's coalition. For sure. Oh, yeah. um, and you know that. So, so in, in a sense, the class politics are clearer here. Um, well, I, I also wanted to ask about out of a, I mean his his sort of associations. He, I don't think he, and I've said this in the nation. I don't think he is a Trotskyist, but he has a lot of supporters among Trotskyists. So on the other hand, there aren't that many Trotskyists. Mm -hmm. You know, a few hundred, maybe a few thousand. Mm. So it's a, it's not the kind of the sort of the British left is a much wider phenomenon than the base that Corbyn comes out of. Mm. But he comes out of a recognizable part of it, and it's the part that has a lot of energy for doing things like campaigning, going to meetings, protesting, organizing marches. He was the chairman of the Stop the War Coalition. Mm. So, you know, it's not that he's been hiding his light under a bushel or just going to meetings. He's been out there campaigning. Um, but, you know... Oh, is Bernie in a way. Oh, yeah. Bernie has uh, got that authenticity thing going. And I just got to ask about, you know, there, there's been the rise of Syriza in Greece and Podemos in Spain. Do you see any kind of tie-in with the rise of, of the left in, in those countries? I mean, obviously, those are a lot uh, less wealthy countries. Oh, yeah. No, I, I think that's, that's what I think is really interesting. I mean, there are, lots of, there are lots of parallels between Sanders and Corbyn because they're both sort of white men of a certain age, um, and they're both in some sense fringe figures, uh, you know, whereas, uh, but they're, they're also both career politicians. 
True. Whereas, you know, Alex Tsipras, who's the, who's the leader of... Yeah, he's just a Syria, kid. Was, ...was not a career politician. He was an academic. Uh, and the guy who's the leader of Podemos was also not a career politician. Um, I think there's, you know, politics happens the, in, in waves that go beyond national boundaries. And things that happen in one country affect other countries, even if only by inspiration. You know, even if only by seeing people in the streets in Cairo or seeing people in Venezuela doing this or, you know, I mean, in a way, why else would the United States have wasted so much energy and treasure trying to crush Cuba? You know, it's, it's not because Cuba ever posed a threat to us, right. certainly not since the Russians took their missiles off it. Right. It's because of the, the risk of intellectual or political contamination. So, yeah, I think I think ideas matter, and I think ideas go outside of national boundaries, and I think we seem to be seeing a kind of gathering wave of left energy, particularly after the financial crisis kind of delegitimized and exposed the incompetence of the people who were supposedly the masters mm-hmm. of the universe. Um, but, you know, it hasn't yet come to power in a way that I mean, it's come to power in Greece and that it holds office, but yeah. the power in Greece is held by the Troika yeah. and the bankers. Yeah. Uh, you know, it, it hasn't come to power in Spain, and also it's, you could call it a populist wave, and in Spain the problem is you have left populism represented by Podemos, but you also have right populism, and it's not clear that left populism is, is much more popular than right populism. Mm. In the U.S., we have, you know, we have left populism. We have Bernie Sanders, but yeah. we have right populism. We, sure we have do. Donald Trump. We sure do. So uh, there is something going on. It is, it is bigger than any one country, but it's not going anywhere that you can necessarily mm. predict or be very happy about yet. Yeah. Interesting. Well, that will lead us into the final song here. Perfect. Thank you so much. Very, very interesting. Dee Dee Guttenplan is uh, currently editor-at-large at The Nation. And if people are interested in following you, The Nation, any other uh, links? Uh, the Nation or uh, I'm, I'm at Dee Dee Guttenplan on Twitter. Thank you so much. Thanks for being with us and helping to keep democracy alive. <laughs> in your hand You see somebody naked You say who's that man You try so hard But you don't understand What to say when you get home Something is happening But you don't know what it is Do you It's now Feel the peace that you feel. You say, possible as your hands go 